Welcome to We Are Unstoppable, sponsored by the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. I'm your host, Les Shapiro. And I'm your co-host, Vic Lombardi. Now, each episode, we'll bring inspiring interviews with great athletes, celebrities, and the most brilliant minds in medicine on how to beat adversity to win in life. So thanks for spending time with us as we bring you one step closer to becoming your best unstoppable self. Well, if you follow football at all over the last 40 years, somewhere along the line, you've gotten your information from today's guest, Ed Werder. Ed has been an NFL beat writer for major publications such as the Dallas Morning News and the Orlando Sentinel. He's reported on the game for CNN and Sports Illustrated. And since 1998, you've seen him regularly on ESPN. Ed, thanks for joining us. Uh, Always glad to talk to my old friends from Denver, where it all began. Hey, I want to start with the pandemic, what we're going through right now nationally, actually worldwide, and, and how it's changed the way you and your fellow journalists cover the NFL on a day-to-day basis. What's been the biggest challenge for you so far? Well, my whole game is getting unique information. And the pandemic has really made that especially challenging because we don't go out to the team facilities anymore and, you know, cover practice, have access to the locker room and the players and the coaches. So you're not in a, in a circumstance uh, leading up to your game assignment where, you know, you can talk to Dak Prescott with 10 other or 50 other reporters and then wait them out and, you know, pull them aside for two questions that nobody else asked him and present that to your audience a few days later. Uh, and, and so the same thing kind of after a game. In fact, my expertise, alleged expertise, is covering the Dallas Cowboys. And one of the unique things with the Cowboys is their general manager is their owner, Jerry Jones. And so typically – after every game for 31 years, Jerry Jones comes out of the locker room and in a very emotional state, win or lose, uh, and you're left to choose between going to the head coach's press conference or immediately entering the locker room and talking to the players who just played the game. Well, Jerry has all the authority and all of the outrageous opinions in the organization, so you don't walk past Jerry. But we ha- we, that hasn't happened at all this year. Jerry's only spoken all year to the two hosts of his radio show on the official radio station of the Cowboys. So I, I would say this off season is more unpredictable than ever because we have no sense of what Jerry has thought as their season disintegrated from hiring Mike McCarthy and expecting a Super Bowl to Dak Prescott being injured for the first time in his career to finishing six and 10 and missing the playoffs. So I, I think those are good examples. Same thing kind of after a game, you just don't have the chance to, talk to players one-on-one, everything's done on Zoom as a group. And it's, uh, unless you can text coaches and players, getting unique information is more challenging than ever. Are you fearful that a lot of this will carry over post-pandemic access to locker rooms, players, coaches? I do have concerns about um, some teams and maybe the league deciding that this is uh, a beneficial way for them to go because they can, protect stories, protect their own interests better. Right. I mean, uh, if I want to, I can't, they can't prevent me necessarily with the same ease now, you know, talking to whatever player I want as they can when, Hey, we're making these three players available on zoom today, these two players tomorrow and these two players on Friday. And that's all you get. Like you can't just go to the locker room in the course of a week and get whoever it is you want. They can shield players better than ever before. Uh, they make coaches available once a week other than the head coach. So yeah, I'm concerned about it, but I I think the NFL 
the, I think the NFL sees the greater good in, in creating access into media. And while the stories aren't always flattering, um, they do create a lot of conversation nationally about the league, which is ultimately beneficial. Ed, you covered that team in the early 90s when they were producing Super Bowl championships like nothing. So you, you saw it all. You experienced it all. In, in your 40-plus years, what would you consider the biggest story you've ever covered? Well, I think the biggest story I ever was involved in breaking was uh, after the Cowboys had won their two Super Bowls under uh, Jimmy Johnson that offseason at the NFL League meetings in uh, March – of 1995 in a bar in Orlando. Uh, we basically broke the story having sat with Jerry Jones late into the night that he was, he was serious about firing Jimmy Johnson as a head coach and had it involved having to get rid of two other reporters who just happened to be in Jerry's audience because the free beer hadn't run out yet uh, and trying to protect the story for ourselves. And uh, we may have engaged in some behavior that I'm not typically proud of in that regard, but I did feel justified in that Jerry meant the story for us as, you know, the beat writers of the Dallas morning news, the paper he read, he didn't intend it for the other two guys, one of whom worked in Tampa and the other was in Cincinnati. Uh, but that thing, you know, that story evolved over the course of two days, Jimmy cut everybody off in the media uh, after leaving with a, a quote that demonstrated his fury and seriousness as he left the meeting saying he was going to reconsider his future as head coach of the Cowboys. I then went to Pensacola because his next meeting was, or his next public appearance was going to be at Emmett Smith's football camp. So I rode around all day in Emmett Smith's car as he showed me Pensacola. And we talked about the craziness of a head uh, owner firing a head coach who just won back-to-back -back Super Bowls. Uh, then I met Jimmy when he flew in that next morning for the camp. And then I got to the airport, I returned my car and the guy I returned my car to said, Oh, you're from Dallas. Troy Aikman was just here. So I grabbed my keys back and <laughs> ran back out to Emmett's football camp to get Troy Aikman's point of view on the whole thing. So it was a crazy period of time. And, you know, it, it, it ended in the due solution of one of the great partnerships in, in the history of football. Well, Ed, you know we call this podcast We Are Unstoppable. You obviously have been unstoppable in the way you've covered the Dallas Cowboys and the NFL through the years. Um, so good that you were awarded the Dick McCann Award, uh, which is presented for long and distinguished reporting on professional football. And you have been unstoppable away from the field as well. I I'm going to put this very bluntly. I hope you're not offended by the way I put it. But the 2010s were not kind to you. Is that, is that fair, the decade of 2010? To our, our, our family uh, faced a number of uh, medical challenges, and I assume that's what you're alluding to. Yeah, if you don't mind, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go over a few of them uh, sure. so our audience understands exactly what you went through. In 2011, your daughter Christy needed brain surgery. It was a, a problem stemming from her childhood, a cancerous tumor on her pituitary gland. She had to relearn how to walk and talk again. It was like having a stroke. In 2016, Christy's husband, Trey, died of colon cancer at a very young age. He was only 30. Uh, in 2017, you were a victim of layoffs at ESPN. Uh, fortunately, you're back there, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. And in 2019, your wife, Jill, was diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, she went through chemo and radiation, and, and it's good to know she's doing very, very well these days. Ed, who did you piss off? I mean, Everybody, apparently. What did you do to deserve all of this? <laughs> but, but, but mainly, how did you get through it all? 
Um, well, my, my role um, in, in the story is, is not the primary role. Uh, you know, the primary characters in, in this story of uh, persevering through adversity um, at ridiculously high levels are, you know, our daughter, Christy, um, who has survived and um, has thrived to the point that, you know, she's a teacher and, and, a, and a tutor and the most, you know, most faithful person in the world at a time when I can't imagine she should be the first one who doesn't believe in God, right? Um, based on the challenges that she's had. Trey, as you mentioned, you know, unfortunately, you know, didn't survive and died at, at the age of 31. He and Christy were married for only four years. And for the first two, she was recovering from her brain surgery, as you described, learning how to walk again and, and doing physical therapy and, and so forth. And he was supportive of her. And then he was diagnosed with cancer. And so the last two years were spent uh, with him getting all kinds of, you know, treatments in Houston and MD Anderson and driving them down there and meeting them there and, and being a part of that. And then, um, you know, Jill, Jill, uh, we've been married for 39 years. And um, uh, so, yeah, I've, I've, had, I've had some really challenging moments um, where, you know, I had to tell Christie's doctor, look, before her surgery, I said, you know, we can get through anything as long as she can have a long and normal life, as long as that can be the ultimate result, then we can get through that. And I need you to be honest with me and tell me if that's, if that's your prediction, your expectation. And he said it was. And so we got through that. And then, you know, I, I had to, I had to tell Trey in his final days as he was in the hospital right down the street from us that um, he was never going home. And uh, you know, he, he didn't know that at the time. And that was hard. And uh, I had to tell Jill when she woke up from her surgery that the cancer was more extensive than we, they, had, they had believed and she would require uh, chemotherapy and radiation treatments. And, but that hopefully, um, you know, they had had such success with breast cancer that she could survive uh, a long period of time. And, and so uh, Trey passed, unfortunately. Christy and, and Jill, fortunately, are everyday parts of my life. And uh, uh, they, they deserve the credit for being able to make it through all that. Like the hardship they endured uh, was, was humongous compared to what I had to witness. It wasn't easy. I'm not going to say it was easy. I can remember sitting in the window in Christy's room. We spent a, uh, either me, my wife, Jill, or, or Trey spent every night in the hospital with her for an entire month after her surgery. And I remember looking out the window, Children's Medical Center in Dallas, and the intersection of all the main highways going into and out of Dallas are right there. And just thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of cars going by this facility every day. And you just thought, do they even think about how fortunate they are, you know, to have good health and to not be turning up this road and coming into this facility to, uh, to see a loved one or to visit a friend or, or, or a, a family member? Do they have any idea how fortunate they are? I hope they do. Um, but th that kind of thought has always stuck with me. But the credit, like I said, really is theirs. Um, I drove and I motivated and uh, I was a caretaker in many regards. But the real hero is Jill because she was, she was the primary character in all of it. You know, How's Jill doing right now, Ed? How's your wife? She's great. She, uh, her hair's grown back. And if she's up to the challenge with a flat iron, she can uh, get it straight again. Like she likes to wear it. 
Uh, she did lose her hair. Um, but yeah, she's back doing her yoga classes five, six days a week. We have a Peloton uh, fitness bike at the house. She rides that uh, multiple times a week. So she's really engaged in that. That's the thing. Like the people across the street from us are overweight. They smoke, they drink, and they basically live in their open garage watching TV, smoking, drinking, gambling, and engaging in all other sorts of unhealthy behavior. And here's Jill drinking green juice every morning and working out and doing yoga and she gets cancer. It's, it's a crazy thing. And uh, cancer really knows no boundaries. I, I was going to ask you, you ever, you ever get mad, though? Perspective. You mentioned perspective. And it's a, such a crazy thing. Like you had job situations where you lose a job, another job waiting. And you feel sorry for yourself because you lose that job. And you got to quickly remind yourself, man, there's so many things bigger than jobs. You ever piss yourself off feeling sorry for yourself on that level? Um, well, I don't, yeah, I mean, I didn't think what happened to me in 2017 when I got laid off was fair by, you know, any measure. Um, and, and I was fortunate. A lot of people have been laid off at ESPN and, and none of them or very few of them, uh, had it happen to them because their quality of work wasn't, uh, didn't meet expectations. And I felt like I was among those. Uh, and I really didn't, like I never thought of having needing another place to work, um, and I was contractually obligated to them for two and a half years. So, on one hand, I was very fortunate in that I had a significant amount of time left on my contract that they had to pay me for, and they paid me out um, just as if I was still covering a game every week, right? Every two weeks, I still got my insurance, I still got my four hundred one k, the whole thing for two and a half years, and everybody says, "Wow, that's," and I, and I had the same misguided notion that, wow, you know, coaches get fired. They still get paid. Ah, if I could get fired and still get paid, that'd be the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Well, it's really not because it does deprive you of the thing you love doing, right? We all love doing this. We all love covering the games um, and engaging with the players and the coaches. And so, and I miss that not being out allowed to do that when you can only do it for a finite period of time was frustrating. And while they paid me, they also had control over what I could and couldn't do outside of ESPN and some things they let me do and some things they didn't let me do. But ultimately I was fortunate that I was allowed to return before my contract actually expired. And had I known that was going to be the outcome, then the two and a half years might not have been so agonizing, but I didn't know that that's what was going to happen. And so that was difficult. Well, there was also another fortunate aspect to that. You were able to be by Jill's side. Yeah during her cancer treatments through all this, right? Because you, you weren't working regularly for ESPN. Right. You know, in a way that I ordinarily wouldn't have been able to, unless, you know, I didn't fulfill all my assignments, which they probably would have been understanding about, but yeah, I was able to spend a lot more time with Jill and it did afford me the opportunity to be right there with Jill for every single one of her treatments, you know, and she didn't need a lot of my help. Um, but maybe it was a little bit comforting for her to know that I was there to provide it. What would you consider through all that? Because we only do rely on something. What, what advice would you give to somebody that has to suffer through a wife's pain, a daughter's pain? What was your coping mechanism for the last decade? Uh, I don't know. I, I just think, uh, you know, determination and perseverance are just an essential part of life. And uh, everybody's going to be challenged in one way or in many ways. Um, sometimes it's your survival in a business sense. Sometimes it's actually your physical survival. What is it? I, I'm, I'm trying to think. I remember when I 
did the commencement speech at the University of Northern Colorado two springs ago. And oh, by the way, on the day that I was giving this speech, Jill's hair started to fall out from the radiation and chemotherapy. So talking about perseverance and adversity were, uh, were perfect topics at the time. But you know, one of the things I cited in that, in that speech was something that Bill Parcells used to tell his teams. I had the good fortune of, of covering Bill Parcells. And he, you know, he was a genius motivator. He could push his players beyond their perceived limitations. And, and, one, and, and one of the speeches he used to give them was, listen, we're going to go out there and they're going to hit us and we're going to hit them. And we're going to be hurting a little bit and they're going to be hurting a little bit. And we're going to be a little tired and they're going to be a little tired. And sometimes it's what you do after that that counts. Sometimes it's just who can endure it the longest. It doesn't even mean you have to play better. You just have to be willing to keep going. That's what helped me in life. And so I think that's a, a pretty good perspective as to, you know, the thought process you have to have, the determination you have to possess. And the Italian philosopher Seneca, you know, he said, disaster is virtue's opportunity. And so I think things like that inspire you to, you know, just go on with it, just to get through it. Not a particularly religious person. And so I can't say that I relied on my faith, but I don't know. I, I just, I admired the will of the people around me who were enduring their greatest challenge to survive. And I just wanted to be there to support that however I could. Ed can't let you go without allowing you to promote your own podcast, the Doomsday Podcast. It's uh, Dallas Cowboys centric. Tell us what we can hear if we listen to the Doomsday Podcast. Yeah, it, sometimes it's difficult uh, because I don't always cover the Cowboys game. And so, uh, but I always watch the Cowboy games. I always have access to unique information and insights about how they play or what's, what's in the news about them. So we put out a podcast once a week during the season and then as news merits in the offseason. And again, the Cowboys will be one of the uh, most interesting teams this offseason because Dak Prescott uh, is unsigned and he's now one year closer to unrestricted free agency as what I think he's demonstrated to be an elite quarterback and a guy who's going to cost an awful lot of money for the Cowboys to keep in a situation where the salary cap is going to decline. How do people find the podcast? Uh, every traditional measure. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on uh, Stitcher. Uh, just basically anywhere you go, hit the little podcast button on your phone and type in Doomsday Podcast, and uh, you'll find Matt Mosley and I giving our opinions and analysis of the Cowboys. Well, Ed, thank you for joining us on our podcast. We are unstoppable uh, because you epitomize what we talk about on a week-to-week basis on this podcast. Thanks for joining us. Hey, I, uh, I love what you guys do and the people you support and uh, the way you do your jobs. Um, I'm greatly uh, appreciative of co- being able to call you guys friends, and less, uh, best of luck to you as you engage in in your own cancer battle or continue to engage in your own uh, ability to overcome cancer. Thanks, Ed. Really appreciate that. We Are Unstoppable is sponsored by the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. You know, Les, when I got hit with prostate cancer, it's the first place I turned to because I know the Anschutz Campus They really delve into breakthrough technology. If there's something new on the horizon, I know they've got it. And I was hit with lung cancer, and that's where I get treated as well, at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. They've got me up and running. They've made me unstoppable. 
Less, they've made us unstoppable, and they're located right here in the heart of the Rocky Mountain region. Well, we just heard from ESPN's NFL insider, Ed Werder. He's had a lot of adversity thrown at him over the last 10 years, as has his wife, Jill. Jill, as you heard, is a breast cancer survivor. And here to talk about that with us right now is Dr. Jennifer Diamond. She is an associate professor at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus, where she co-directs the Women's Cancer Developmental Therapeutics Program and the Phase One Program. Hello, Dr. Diamond. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So I, I gave a lot of titles there, a lot of long titles. Tell us about your practice at CU Anschutz and what you specialize in. Yeah, sure. So I'm a medical oncologist. I take care of patients with breast cancer, and my research specialty is in clinical trials, looking at new uh, drugs for the treatment of cancer and looking at specifically triple negative breast cancer and how we can improve outcomes. What is triple negative breast cancer? So triple negative breast cancer is a breast cancer subtype. It's uh, cancers that don't express hormone receptors or another target called HER2. And so historically, these types of breast cancers have been more aggressive and more difficult to treat. And we've been limited in our tools, if you will, as far as uh, therapies. And so we are kind of limited to chemotherapy. But over the last few years, we've been able to develop new treatments, including immunotherapy, which lets us harness a patient's own immune system to fight cancer, and also some targeted therapies that are successful. Yeah, let's talk about what's new out there, Dr. Diamond. Are there any breakthroughs, anything on the horizon that you're working on in either one of these programs? And it can be in either you know, research, treatment, or diagnosis. Yeah, there's there's a lot of breakthroughs in breast cancer um, in the last few years. I think we're really fortunate that we've had strong patient advocates that have really increased awareness and funding for breast cancer research. So unlike some other cancers, we seem to have breakthroughs almost every year. Um, in this year, I think the breakthrough for triple negative breast cancer has been the approval of two immunotherapy drugs. So there's one called pembrolizumab and one called atezolizumab that are effective in combination with chemotherapy in certain types of uh, breast cancer. But if we look at kind of the bigger picture as far as early stage breast cancer, which is also really common and, and really important, we've been able to individualize therapies and we're learning more about the biologic makeup of different cancers. And so with patients diagnosed with early stage cancers, we're able to escalate or de-escalate treatment. And so at the end of last year, we heard about a trial called the RX Sponder trial, which looked at patients that have early stage breast cancer and a few positive lymph nodes. And we can use a test called the Oncotype DX to help figure out if patients would really benefit from chemotherapy or not. And the take-home message is that we're using less chemotherapy for certain patients that aren't really going to benefit from it. And that means that we can omit some of that toxicity inside effects with chemotherapy. So really de-escalating treatment for patients that don't need more aggressive therapy, but then increasing or escalating therapy for patients, for example, with triple negative breast cancer. And so, you know, if we just look at breast cancer as a whole, we're getting much more, um, you know, targeted, individualized, personalized in our therapies. So in your estimation, where do you think we sit in this fight against breast cancer? How's our progress? Sounds like we're winning some battles, 
but are we ready to win the war yet soon? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. You know, each decade we're making big strides in improving outcomes. Uh, but unfortunately, we still have a subset of patients that will have a metastatic recurrence um, that doesn't respond well to treatment and they can die from breast cancer. So there's there's still work to be done. Um, the way that we're really addressing kind of what needs to be done now is with early diagnosis. So, you know, really fine tuning who might be at higher risk of breast cancer because of family history or, or other factors, making sure sure that women are getting screening mammography. We're catching these cancers earlier where there's a higher rate of cure from cancer where it never comes back and it doesn't become a life-threatening disease. And then again, with treatments, really trying to use those escalated therapies to prevent recurrence. And then really, I think where the most work still needs to be done is in patients with metastatic breast cancer. And so metastatic breast cancer in 2021 is treatable, but not cure curable uh, for most patients. And so that's where we really need to be thinking outside of the box and trying to figure out how to improve outcomes. And the one therapy that's really been beneficial for a subset of patients is with immunotherapy. And so I think that if we can figure out how to use immunotherapies better, use combinations of immunotherapy, personalized immunotherapy, I think that that um, is kind of maybe what we need to do to really win the war, if you will. Dr. Diamond, is there anything a woman can do to prevent getting breast cancer? Yeah, so there's a lot of lifestyle modifications that can decrease a woman's risk of getting breast cancer. Um, so we know that women that gain weight through menopause and after menopause are at a higher risk of developing breast cancer. So we recommend that women try to maintain an ideal body weight. Um, we also know that uh, drinking alcohol can increase a woman's risk. Um, so we recommend that people limit alcohol consumption. And then if you have a strong family history, there are calculators that can be used to predict the risk of breast cancer. And if it's high enough, there's medications that can be used for primary prevention of breast cancer, like tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors. So that's something else women can do to be proactive if they know that their risk is high. Otherwise, we recommend um, a healthy diet, exercise, uh, limiting alcohol. You know, I'm, I'm reading articles about um, the research that's gone into the COVID-19 vaccine and how that research is helping us fight other afflictions besides just that virus. So I'm wondering, does what you're working on have applications to any other cancers besides breast cancer? Yeah, that's a great point, too. So we know that there are some common features with um, multiple different types of cancers. So in my lab, we work on um, something called P53. So P53 is a protein that's thought of as the guardian of the genome. It's mutated in many different types of cancer, but has a really high rate of mutation in triple negative breast cancer. And we work on kind of um, how that might mediate resistance to chemotherapy. And that certainly 
has applications to other types of cancers. When we think about, um, you know, COVID-19 and the vaccine, um, these special types of RNA vaccines are something that has been investigated in cancer. And so there have been clinical trials uh, using that same type of vaccine, but making a different protein. And so I think that, you know, maybe some of that groundwork for the COVID-19 vaccine was also laid in in some of these cancer therapeutics. And, And I hope that it'll kind of go back the other way too. There have been lots of trials trying to figure out how to make a personalized cancer vaccine and try to figure out, you know, what proteins are uniquely mutated in cancer cells and not in your normal cells. And could you make a vaccine that can be given to a patient with cancer to kind of activate their immune system to target the cancer cells and get rid of them. Um, Problems with that are that the cancer cells can mutate and change, and they can also signal to the immune cells. So really the interactions there are really complex, and it's not as simple as developing a vaccine to fight a, a virus. It's more complicated. Last thing, how often... I'm wondering if this has changed at all. How often should a, a person, man or woman, go in for an exam for breast cancer? So you, you bring up another good point that, you know, men can get breast cancer too. It's much less common, but if you notice a change in, in the chest or breast tissue, you should be evaluated right away, um, whether you're a, a man or a woman. Um, but there's no specific screening guidelines for men for breast cancer. Um, for women, the, the screening guidelines can vary based on different um, professional societies, but the American Cancer Society has um, guidelines that many clinicians follow. And so what those guidelines say is that women between age 40 and 45 should consider getting screening mammography, um, but women over the age of 45 should start getting screening mammography um, every year. And then as they get older, they could consider doing that every other year. But it really depends on your family history because women that are at higher risk or have family members that had breast cancer at a young age should get in for um, genetic counseling and testing if that's appropriate. They may need to start their mammographic screening earlier, and they may benefit from the addition of breast MRI to screening mammography to really detect these cancers earlier. Dr. Diamond, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Les. Dr. Jennifer Diamond, she is at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. Thanks for listening to We Are Unstoppable, sponsored by the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. You want more Unstoppable Stories? Subscribe to our podcast wherever you find and listen to podcasts. You can even ask your smart speaker to play We Are Unstoppable Podcasts. And you can visit us at our website, unstoppablepodcasts.com, for more episodes and ways to subscribe. That's unstoppablepodcasts.com. Subscribe today.